was lovely. So we're able to do our sightseeing and dining and fine whining. Sounds excellent. Rather like the return of the saint, where <laughs> I have finished my penance of... Okay, one... you watched it all, because it was just one series, wasn't it? It was just one series of 24 episodes, one of which was a double header, mm. which they released as a feature film with Girl okay. Honeycutt looking very good, actually. There are quite a few tropes which they continued with. Um, but the really strange thing about, uh, because of they continued with the tropes, you expect them to be have the same kind of zip, but they don't mm. really. And what we were talking about, remember I was saying, actually, they don't know how to use the locations properly. <laughs> but the very next episode after that, The Imprudent Professor, which has Dr. Finley's Bill Simpson in it, is really good. I mean, they actually use all those locations. They have speedboats, yachts, helicopters, Ian Ogilvy in various very tight tailored shirts, <laughs> uh, usually unbuttoned to the navel. That is a new trope for Return of the Saint, which I then noticed that they got Gail Honeycutt to do that. Okay. And fine figure of a woman um, who would object. But that was in uh, The Brave Goose. The Imprudent Professor was uh, only 50 minutes and it fair zipped along. It's a fairly implausible plot, but there's quite a lot of action and that's probably the best one. There's a couple of others were in, in London, but The Imprudent Professor's set in the south of France it may well have been shot in Italy, I don't know. And, of course, as a result, all the dialogue has been replaced uh, and been redone. And more than half the episodes of Return of the Saint, that's the situation. Robert Rietti gets to do about three or four characters. <laughs> but there's an awful lot of cars zipping around hairpin bends, and there's a bit of stuff on boats, and there's farmhouses, and very few close-ups, as far as I can tell. And when you zip through Roger Moore's Saint, mm. if you've got it on really fast forward, you get these heads flashing backwards and forwards. And there's quite a lot of proper acting to camera and you're listening to people. They don't seem to do that in Return of the Saint. And as I've said before, Ian Ogilvy does very well with what he's given. Um, but it's, it lacks the humour and any warmth um, that... Roger Moore's Saint it's a bit does. Cold. Despite the sunny south of France locations, it's a bit cold. Yeah, and which is quite strange, but it's very much of a piece with something like the New Avengers or the Professionals or the Sweeney. A slight bleakness. And what I'm still trying to figure out is how did that, the awfulness of the 70s, leak into that? <laughs> and I think it's possibly something to do with the fact that TV, in the same way as Hollywood, once the studio system started to die and you weren't using the big studios and location mm. filming became very fashionable, it it loses something. I think probably it was not really any more expensive or not. It probably came out of about the same. And yes, I'm just interested by the fact that it's, it kind of feels a, sort of a bit American, but because... I mean, maybe that was <clears throat> maybe that was part of it to make it more sellable. Yeah, I mean, it it, it could well be safe to say I won't be revisiting it. Be <laughs> appraising, I believe the term. Yeah. So yes, Return of the Saint, a valiant effort, but very much of its time. Mm. Um, whereas Rog, I think, is fairly timeless. Yes, that was a pre-ramble. Right, hello and welcome to Roast Into Black and White Television, the review show where me, Guy Morgan, and my co-host David Newell ruminate about various black and white TV shows which flickered across British television screens from the Suez Crisis of 1956 to the three-day week of 1974. And the spine of this entire enterprise is the black and white episodes of The Saint currently unspooling on Talking Pictures Television. And uh, we're now into series three. And 
we have three episodes to talk about. The Loving Brothers, The Man Who Liked Toys and The Death Penalty. These have your favourite trope, Dave. Yay! <laughs> Where the title is pretty much the last line of dialogue. We're famous now, The Loving Brothers. Well, there you are, Claude. That is what happened to the man who liked toys. After all, Osmond and Stride both paid the death penalty. Um, yes. Let's look at the Loving Brothers. And I think it's fair to say that this episode laid the foundations of how Australia was perceived during the 60s and 70s in Britain. I'd like to introduce a chap from Pommyland. He'll be joining us this year here in the philosophy department of the University of Pommyland. This is Bruce. This is Bruce. This is Bruce. Is your name not Bruce then? The name is Templar. Simon Templar. That's going to cause a little confusion. All right, fellas, the beers are on me. Yes, we are down under. Um, and down under is one of those phrases that is always added to a film or TV episode title um, to indicate that it is set in Australia rather than saying, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's in Australia. So hence the rescuers down under or Quigley down under. We are in Australia um, or a representation of Australia rather because we are safe in the knowledge that if the production unit of the Saints isn't going to go to some place like Barnstable, um, they're certainly not going to go down under. They're certainly not going to go to Oz. Rog is out in his Land Rover in the outback. Um, we're not quite sure what he's on. He's, he's on one of his, his holidays. He has an accident with his Land Rover. He, he breaks apart and he needs to repair it. And the nearest place seems to be something called the Kinsel Family Mine. This is a very rough and ready operation. Um, and it's a single man operation as well, as it's run by um, Reg Lai, who is a shoot first, shoot second and shoot third um, a kind of person and then ask um, uh, questions. But Simon rapidly um, wins him over and Reg Lai is running a mining operation. He believes it's there's a, there's a silver silver streak in this mine that he's operating on um all the locals are quite tolerant of reg's kind of eccentric ways um and then the plot begins to expand a little bit uh, and we seem to be entering a phase where it may be a a lovely family reunion because it turns out that reg has two sons by the way I should point out at this point and it's quite refreshing that we've actually got real australians in it as well We've not got people kind of like doing Australian actors. No, main three lead characters are all Australian. And they're played by Ed Devereaux, those of us may remember from Skippy, um, and Ray Barrett, who we may remember from The Troubleshooters. I should also point out, I know, Guy, you said about cultural identity, that Reg does have a hat with corks. Yes, that's part of the um, founding image of... <laughs> the British view of Australia, as we'll have heard in the clip that we just played. <laughs> oh, yes. That idea of people in shorts with corks on their hats in a very long bar drinking copious amounts of beer for the six o'clock swirl. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's another TV movie horrible bar. It's populated by loads of sweaty guys in, in very tight shorts. <laughs> Um, and very short shorts. It, it doesn't look as if it's it's going to rate very highly on TripAdvisor. It's rambunctious, I would say, because there's an awful lot of singing. There's an awful lot of drinking going on. Um, and, of course, as soon as Simon's turned up, there's a bit of fist fighting going on as well. Which um, actually and, gets him into people's good books. Yes, amazingly, rather than being ostracised as a stranger who's coming to town and caused ructions, the fact that he punches out a local heavy earns him respect and a big pint of beer as well. So that's all right. Um, and like I said, we, we, we then begin to delve a little bit deeper into the plot. The fact that Reg needs money to continue running his mine and he approaches both his sons, who are successful business people back in the real world of Sydney. But they're callously not interested um, 
Uh, Simon offers to put up the money that he needs to develop the mine, which includes having an assayer um, come in, an expert geologist um, to come in um, and appraise that, um, but also to take him to Sydney to um, to meet up finally with his sons, um, who it's safe to say um, they are estranged from their father. Yeah, for a while we get a charming little poignancy because Reg realises that his sons want nothing to do with them, even though it turns out he originally financed their business motion. And there's a charming scene which you have to laugh at, really, um, because when Reg turns up, Ed Devereaux is having a sophisticated cocktail party. And it's the idea of Australians being socially shamed by the actions of another Australian, which I didn't think was a thing which ever happened. But yeah, Reg realises that, oh no, I'm going to have to do this on my own. Then we, we sort of get this very clever, like an Ernie Bilko type setup, where Simon concocts an idea um, to not necessarily get the money to run um, Reg's mine, which turns out to be worthless, but to fund um, the hospital, which lovely Annette Andre is hoping to start locally. This is after a bit of sabotage as well. Yes, the, the, the guy who got his jaw punched has his own way of dealing with this kind of lawlessness. Um, he doesn't like Simon Templar, he doesn't like Reg Light, doesn't, doesn't like much apart from it, short shorts and drinking. Uh, and yes, we are in a mine, there has to be a cave-in, and there is a cave-in. Reg survives just about, doesn't last it through to the end. It ends up being a, a happy ending, I would say, because even though the two brothers aren't reunited with their dad, they are gold into providing the funding for the much-needed local hospital. Which, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure whether the local population was big enough to sustain such an well, they certainly they, they certainly sustain enough injuries, judging by the number of fights, mining disasters that they have, and probably quite a few drunken fallings over and fistfights. Mm. I should point out as well, we, um, we do have some marvelous age differences um, in this, or sometimes a lack of age difference. Um, now, Reg Lie always looked older than he was. Uh, um, he's an Australian character actor with perma stubble. Um, who would always look as if he was just got up and started filming. And at the time of the episode, he was a youthful 52, but looked a lot older. Um, whereas his clean-cut sons, Ed Devereaux and Ray Barrett, are 39 and 37. You just think, right, Reg must have had kids at a very young age. And it's that thing of, do we politely say that Reg looks older than he is? or Ed and Ray look very youthful. I don't know. It's either of those choices. I think you've got to remember that people can get very weather-beaten in the Australian outback. <laughs> yeah, and mining is a very hard profession, particularly silver mining. Quite. So it was quite fun, the Loving Brothers, um, particularly the kind of switcheroo, and Annette Andre's nurse seems to take to lying through her teeth quite easily. Yes, she's part of Simon's scheme to gull the brothers, because what they do is they, much like the Duke brothers in Trading Places, who are beside themselves with meanness, they play one off against the other. And when they're finally revealed that they have been, not necessarily cheated, but manipulated into providing all this cash. The assembled press of Western Australia is there, and so they can't go back on it. Simon concocts this news story about them being two of the most generous and beneficial to be funding this outback hospital. So well done. Let's just talk about who was in it. Reg Lye, uh, we've discussed, weather-beaten, old before his time, mm. born in Sydney. He's been in Budgie, Ace of Wands, Randall and Hopkirk, The Champions, Dr. Finley, Adam Adamant, Jason King, and it's the first of three saints. Ray Barrett, born in Brisbane, a regular face on British television in the 60s and 70s, most famous for 106 episodes of The Troubleshooters in the role of Peter Thornton. He also supplied numerous voices to Jerry Anderson's Stingray and Thunderbirds. Uh, he was the Hood, amongst others. <sighs> Elsewhere, seven episodes of Ghost Squad and the all-important Avengers Point. 
Ah, there we go. Um, Ed Devereaux, born in Sydney, half a point. The Persuaders, The Zoo Gang, 207 episodes of Skippy. Let's all sing the song. Annette Andre, who was in the last one, uh, born in Sydney, one and a half Avengers points, and it's her second saint in a row. Once again, she probably gets more lines than she did in any Randall and Hopkirk episode. <laughs> Betty McDowell, born in Sydney. She's been in Ivanhoe, May Gray, The Third Man, The Flying Doctor. When I looked up The Flying Doctor, I thought, well, it must be an Australian programme. I th- I seem to remember it was actually shot somewhere like Walton on Thames, um, where they made the Four Just oh. Men and <laughs> Robin Hood and places like that. And presumably there was stock footage supplied from the Australian yes. end, and lots of people wearing hats with corks on them and uh, <laughs> shorts. So lots of glycerin. Now, actually, it's not Walton. It says IMDb lists uh, the Flying Doctor as being filmed at Elstree. She also appeared in Interpol Calling, The Four Just Men, No Hiding Place, many others. Dick Bentley, very well-known name, he's from Melbourne, mainly known for his work on radio, particularly as Ron, of Ron and Eth in the Glums. Uh, a few TV appearances, including a Randall and Hopkirk. Grant Taylor, who was the Wicked Grove, was actually from London. He's got one point, two troubleshooters, the champions, single plays, and nine episodes of UFO. Noel Trevathan, who I think it plays Annette Andre's character's fiance, he was a Kiwi, a New Zealander, has half a point, and it's his second saint. He was in the well-meaning mayor. Ah, right. Okay, yeah. He was the No Holds Bar reporter who uh, managed to work out Simon might be in trouble because the police had no record of a raid happening at the building Absolutely. Site. No emergency call was received here. Kevin Brennan was from Sydney. Uh, two points. The first of two saints, plus many other credits. And John Tate from New South Wales. Two Avengers points. Maygrave, Danger Man, The Baron. Lent his voice to Thunderbirds, The Champions, The Strange Report, Department S. And this is the first of three saints. Vince Fleming, uncredited, but had three points, but this is his only saint. And Roy Beck, uncredited, two points, 13 saints and appearances elsewhere. So we usually make a big deal of the Canadians, and that's because of the behind-the-camera contributions of Canada. But I think it's only fair that we mention all the contributions by different colonial cousins. Absolutely. In this case, we salute you, Australia. The bars around Earl's Court must have been empty when they were filming. So, advance, Australia fair. Um, (laughs) The next episode is, contrary to The Loving Brothers, which had some likeable characters, Mm -hmm. The Man Who Liked Toys, it's it's another twisty tale with plenty of suspects, most of them unpleasant. There's the corrupt business magnate. When you see something you want, regardless of who it belongs to, take it. Don't worry about scruples or integrity. Take it. All right, Lewis. In future, I shall do exactly that. The corrupt union leader. I've got a majority vote today, but only just. I can't keep it going after next week. The unfaithful wife. Oh, I wish that just once that you would shoot Lewis and throw him out the hotel window. The disloyal second in command. 7,000 a year jobs don't grow on trees, you know. And the under-pressure business rivals. Greedy, grasping, stupid little man who plays with toys. 
John, are you really going to let him get away with it? Well, what else do you suggest? What we talked about. Remember? So, fit them all into a plot, Dave. Well, a lot of it did seem very familiar um, to us. For those who may, the other week, have seen the ever-loving spouse because there were similar shared plot elements, such as the treacherous second-in-command fooling around with the leading character's wife. And in fact, in this case, it's the same actress playing the faithless wife as well. But the man who liked toys shows us uh, um, an individual who indeed does like toys. In the opening of the episode, he's in a toy shop with his um, second-in-command, Morris Kaufman, and he is indeed engaging with lots of um, lovely toys, as he says. Toys hold the key to relaxation. But it, it transpires that maybe he's being blackmailed. And Simon is called in, because we all know what Simon's views are on blackmail. There's another, it's not a trope, but it is the loyal secretary. Yes, because if you remember the Scorpion, it was the loyal secretary who alerted Simon to the possibility her boss was being blackmailed. And in this case, it's the loyal secretary again who, who can find no other explanation for why £750, um, a lot of money back then, is taken by her boss each week. And then we discover it's not blackmail because Simon secretly follows in his white Volvo registration number st1 he follows the multi-millionaire's limousine to it's a car park really isn't that it is just a car park it's a car park where the person being paid off in this instance is troublesome union agitator david lodge and it appears that david lodge is using his union position to agitate the workers at a business rival and this is having such an impact on production that the company is under threat and only the man who likes toys can sort of step in and manage to resolve this by putting in a bid and taking them over it's an electronics company isn't it which is just yes. trying to fulfill a government contract and if they have any more strike action disrupting production then it's going to be disaster and it's fair to say that it's an unfriendly takeover yes there is that thing of kind of ruthlessness and the the takeover appears to be agreed appears to be concluded but then in a in a bit deft sleight of hand it appears that our ruthless businessman then commits suicide he's in a locked room it's on his own there's no one else there the first person who breaks down the door is simon and he can't figure out what's going on. There's a gun in the victim's hand. Maybe it's the pressure of, of all this shady business dealing has seen him take his own life. And those circumstances certainly convince Claude Eustace Teal that it's an open and shut case of suicide. Yeah, I must admit, Claude Eustace Teal, who usually has a little bit of a sparky relationship with Simon, um, does allow him a lot of latitude in this episode because in a police interview, we just told that Simon is there as an observer on the police interview, even though he asks most of the questions in a most accusatory way as well. And you just think, all oh, right, crikey, yes. Because he believes that, wait a minute, no, this isn't suicide, this is something else. And, and like you said, then the, um, the people begin to queue up, there is, um, the faithless wife, who we know is having an affair, second in command. There's the company that was going to be bought out. Maybe it's them. Maybe it's even David Lodge, the union agitator. Uh, so there's lots of suspects. And I must admit, the way it is finally resolved, it is a little bit Jonathan Creek in terms of the delivery method of the fatal bullet um, and also the proposed toy that was behind it. But yes, it is It is resolved and it does turn out, thankfully, not to be the faithless wife. It's not the faithless and conniving second in command, um, but it is the business rivals who initially appear to have a really good solid alibi. Indeed, this is all dependent on Simon breaking into the factory, which looks extraordinarily like Elstree. <laughs> Yeah, and Simon does practice some very good desk searching. No ransacking for him. <laughs> no, it's just you shuffle some papers around in a drawer 
um because he's not even sure what he's looking for and then he discovers he thought what what is that it's, it's it's a ribbon of some sort it would have made more sense if it had actually been inside the dummy gun because mm. spoiler alert it turns out <laughs> that the dummy gun is in fact a kind of little what the butler saw device mm. you have to look down the barrel so dangerous and press the trigger mechanism so that it lights up runs the film and you see a chimpanzee well it's a book on tea advert from the look of it yes it? it is yeah i think that's 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 all it is it's a chimpanzee as a wild west cowboy which is quite interesting uh, as an <laughs> idea. but i presume that you could also substitute other bits of film for whatever and of course john paul who was the lead in doom watchers dr quist mm. has used psychology to persuade the businessman to play with the toy having substituted a real gun real gun oh no and he hold it up to his eye presses the trigger and, and no brookborn chimps no no brookborn chimps but hence we get why Simon has such a squeamish reaction to when the body is discovered, because by the sounds of it, ruthless businessman probably shot through the army. Mm. Yes. So Claude Eustace Teal turns up and the guilty get nicked and yep. justice is served. But the question remains, what happened to that government electronics contract? Yeah, because that's still going to be needed to be fulfilled to ensure that Britain maintains its place within the electronics market of the world. Unless, of course, it went to the States like Textile Process G. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I'm beginning to wonder if the saint has a surreptitious anti-capitalist <laughs> message. <laughs> Could be very subtle, very nuanced, very nuanced. Um, uh, I should point out we do have a, a, another one of those giggly age differences as well because Jean Moody, faithless wife, accuses older husband of being old and boring and old. And the age difference being at the time, Jean Moody was 34, whilst her old, 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 boring husband was 48. All oh, right. Uh, that's 14 years. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... High pressure, high finance, takes its toll, mm. a bit like the Australian sun in the outback. Yes, um, yeah. Uh, yes, now he was played by John Bascom. Five episodes of the Foresight Saga, three of Softly Softly, and ten episodes of the 70s Poldark. <gasps> All right, okay. Jean Moody, American. This is the last of her four saints, and she was in that very similar situation as the boss's wife having an affair with the second in command and the ever loving spouse <laughs> Maurice Kaufman one point but a more substantial Avengers connection you care to guess Dave oh I don't know was he a, a, a semi-recurring part did they have such things as that no no uh, uh, just the one appearance but he was married to Honor Blackman at the time <gasps> go round our house during the Golden Age, he was in 25 episodes of Champion House, um, if you remember that. That's gruff northern businessmen. I think they were textile manufacturers somewhere in West Yorkshire, or the West Riding of Yorkshire, as it would have been then. This is the first of two saints elsewhere, Danger Man, single plays, guest appearances in ITC shows. 20 episodes of Gary Halliday. IMDb says Gary Halliday was a British television series for children on the BBC from 1959 to 1962. The show starred Terence Longdon as Airman Gary Halliday, reminiscent of Biggles. Oh, right. And because it was made by the BBC, only one episode survives. Oh, oh what a shame. John Paul, the lead in Doomwatch as Dr. Quist, 38 episodes. He has a Tara King Avengers point. Lots of single plays and guest appearances and played Captain Flint in the early 60s version of Swallows and Amazons, which yeah. I dimly remember as having boats in. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the one. Yeah, made the Lake District look much more exciting than it actually is. David Lodge, a star with 193 screen credits and two Avengers points. But unfortunately... The two worst episodes. Oh no! 
Epic and Fog. Consider that shark well and truly jumped. Right, yeah, it's it's a show. I do like David Lodge. I think it it was um, one of the Spike Milligan comedy series, and his line always used to be, "I'm David Lodge, and I was in Cockleshell Heroes." <laughs> no matter what scene or sketch he was in, something that was later picked up by Bert Kwok on uh, Harry Hill's mm-hmm. show. He used to say, "I was in Tenko," you know. <laughs> Also, Inigo Jackson, a fair bit of stuff, including Zed Cars, Man in a Suitcase, Department S, and Jason King. Amongst the uncredited Vic Chapman, 12 Saints, 3 Avengers Points, and numerous ITC shows. And as we were recording, yesterday's Saint episode was the death penalty. Strangely, I think in this one, things would have worked out pretty much the same if the Saint wasn't involved. I'm not entirely sure what he did actively to change the plot. Yes, it is. It is strange. You know, it is. Um, the episode is called The Death Penalty. Um, and thankfully, that would only be a thing that would have been discussed back in the 60s, because nowadays there would never be an open discussion about the death penalty. Certainly not from, I don't know, anyone in a position of political power. For example, you, you wouldn't get anything talking about capital punishment nowadays. No, we are in the south of France. We are in Marseille. Um, and unless Simon is telling us porkies, he tells us... Marseille is the oldest city in France, supposedly founded by the Greeks in 600 BC. Now, we trusted him the other week when he told us that pearls can get dissolved in cooking red wine so i'm just going to have to believe Symes again and assume that marseille is the oldest city it's it's a really kind of disjointed episode because we see someone running through the streets or the empty streets of a darkened city it's not philip latham being pursued by dudley sutton as it was the other week no this is someone being pursued by sinister william marlowe amongst others this person appears very nervous part of a gang he is then brutally shot down by the gang members by the way it's a very small gang. There's three people that we see, even though they are meant to run a crime network involving most of Europe and North Africa. And the body is discovered by Simon because it hits his car. You know, he has to explain to the gendarme that, yes, he's dead. And we think, right, how's Simon going to explain this with his reputation? Is he going to be assumed to be there? And there's none of that because all of a sudden we then cut to some hilltop car driving. And Wanda Ventham is the blonde passenger being driven around by um, a, a potential boyfriend, potential suitor, um, who's revving up his car on the clifftop road um, above um, possibly Cannes, Marseille. And he's driving recklessly. And she wants nothing to do with him. Uh, and then you begin to think for a while, well, how's this fit in with what we've just seen? This down hill time trial in a vintage car i'm not quite sure which vintage car it looks like it has been filmed abroad yes somewhere yes now i'm trying to work out whether this was stock footage or something that belonged in another movie or it was specially shot and might explain why it lasts two and a half minutes (laughs) yeah there's lots of footage they almost knock over some people on bicycles um, they also almost knock over some people who are queuing for a for a clifftop bus. It's all very to catch a thief. But you do, as, as it goes on, you begin to think, well, what's this got to do with a guy who's just been shot in the street? That's seeming to get Simon into trouble. And we, we stick with this scene. Um, Wanda has a bit of a, a hissy fit and begins to to walk back to wherever she lives. Um, and it's then that Simon turns up and he doesn't seem to have a care in the world. He doesn't even seem to to remember that he witnessed a brutal murder only hours earlier. Good afternoon. I would like to point out I'm not in the habit of picking up strange girls on the roads of France. Unless, of course, they happen to be ravishingly beautiful. And gives her a lift back to her father's house. He's a businessman. <laughs> He would appear to be British. I mean, when she gets back to her father's, she then calls herself down by spraying her sore feet with the soda siphon. So Simon asks for water to go with his scotch. But I'm not particularly clear why Mr Stride is 
in the south of France. It's not actually Marseille, so I'm assuming it's somewhere like either Monaco or Nice, maybe, mm. because you're much more likely to wear a white tuxedo in one of those places than you are in Marseille, I would say. Yes, because Simon does say at the beginning, not only is, is Marseille the oldest city in France, um, but it's a bit rough. It has a working harbour um, and a fighting harbour as well. So, yes, all of a sudden we were extracted from that from that world into one of sophisticated white jackets and fine dining and nightclubs. So Simon takes Wanda, Ventham's character, Laura, to dinner because she's fallen out with Toby because he's a jerk, basically. And I yes, because he was driving his car too fast. And he seems to be incredibly immature and it's like something out of a boy's own uh, adventure paper. And Simon is obviously on good terms with the restaurateur. Yes, yeah, yeah, the owner. Uh, it is apparently one of the, the finest establishments in the district. Um, and it's run by a, a gentleman by the name of Darley. Um, and everything seems to be going lovely until we notice the same three villains. And the same clothes. The, um, the same clothes at the start. And they go in um, and they threaten the nightclub owner um, by wishing to extract money on behalf of their massive criminal organisation, which is known as the Latini, um, which sounds like a lovely drink one might have like the evening. Just go, what would you like? Um, oh, I'll have two Latini, please, at this table. Certainly, sir, we'll bring them over. It's, it's that weird thing of that protection racket where they say, what are you going to do for the money that I pay you? I can't afford this you know, 10 or 30,000 francs. But if you look, protection racket, they don't actually do anything, do they? It's not labour intensive or anything like that. If you're running a protection racket, you don't actually have to do anything. And they don't come round and check your smoke alarms or... You know, no, they don't, you know. Give you advice no on... Or, or, or anything like that. No, it's just like, well, yeah, if, if you don't pay us, we will do something. But if you do pay us, we won't. Yes. Let's go... That's quite the reverse of usually even the most basic of business exchanges. Goodness sake, have they got no idea of basic economic principles? So, I mean, there's, there are very few bonus fringe benefits, are there? Yeah. So, yes, they menace him. Rog sticks his nose in because he's seen these shady characters go into the boss's office. Um, and he doesn't like his friend being threatened in this way. And it's at this point we get a little bit more of the plot. Villains kind of explain themselves a little bit more. And then also Simon receives uh, a visit from um, the local kind of like gendarmerie chief, who is someone we've seen before. He's a recurring um, character. Th this might be a technical legal question, Guy. Is it possible that if you gave a police officer one of your best ties that would constitute a bribe science says he, it's a gift yeah it is it's a gift but it, there's going to be strings attached to that tie i hope not else it'll ruin a really good tie but thankfully the cop investigating the case fills us in a little bit on the dubious nature and the all-encompassing aspects of the latini um, and as soon as we hear that faithful statement no one has ever seen the person in charge we know exactly who it is because it's the british businessman mr stride <laughs> now and we definitely know it is that when postasino for it is he in the white tuxedo yes, five times in the same careful eyed viewers may remember him as the luckless vulcan pilot but presumably not wearing a white tux. When <laughs> Paul Stasino's character, Ahmed Osman, I think, mm. I don't think he's any relation to Richard Osman, turns up at Mr. Stride's house, there's a line that I think we may have heard before. Is it that I told you never to come here? <laughs> I told you never to come here under any circumstances. Where would you meet if you can't go around and see your boss at his house? 
and he's not got an office because he he's running a crime empire you'd have to meet i don't know you'd have to meet at a pavement cafe somewhere or a turkish bath yes now mr stride strikes me as someone who is not necessarily well equipped to run a multinational crime empire because his attitude seems to be more of a vicar running a jumble sale apart from when he has a one-sided phone conversation with someone else from the latini we don't see a huge amount of evidence that they have the resources we keep being told about. Like I said, there's the three villains that we see. There's another guy, and one of he's killed at the beginning. Um, and then there's Mr. Stride himself. We don't see anyone else, although the cop insists that he's a network of villainy that riddles Europe and North Africa. Um, Mr. Stride does not have any henchmen. No. He doesn't even seem to have any personal staff. No, he seems to have to do a lot of stuff around the house himself. Yeah, and sort of pour people's drinks and presumably answer the door. and mm. So maybe, yeah, so it's quite possible that those um, everyday household duties are distracting him from running the multinational crime empire. Anyway, Paul Stasino lays it out on the line that he's going to take over. Shows a certain sentimental side because he's not going to rub the guy out right off. He's giving him the chance of a pension. Yes, and, a small one. And then to put pressure, starts chatting up Wanda Ventham, who has already made eyes at Simon and obviously thinks because Toby is a jerk and probably too young, because I think she says a girl ought to marry somebody at least 10 years older. Right. Now, this is where we, again, I know I've done this. This is my third episode on the trot where I'm bringing up this age aspect. Um, Paul Stasino um, character Osmond says that, oh, this can't be little Laura, who I remember, wearing a ghastly school uniform. And we establish, roughly, that Laura is meant to be 22. At the time, Wanda Ventham was 29, and the actor playing her dad was 42. Again, it's that young parenting thing that Reg Lai had in The Loving Brothers. Um, so Mr Stride, as a family man, must have, a daughter came along when he was 13. Maybe that's where all his energies went and... Um... <laughs> Hell being a teenage dad. And what surprised me was that I think I first really noticed her from the Lotus Eaters, because that's the thing that she's best known for, and UFO. But looking at her credits, 24 episodes of The Rag Trade. Oh, right, yeah. Crikey, who'd have... Is that, is that the original Rag Trade or the yeah. 70s re... It's the original Rag Trade, as far as I can tell. She was a nurse in the human jungle. And also in her one and only Avengers point. Ah. Hundred and thirty-five screen credits, so she's a star. Younger viewers may be more familiar with her son, whose name escapes me for the moment. Oh, he's in he's in some things he was in that show where he plays a smart copper and he's done some films and things. That's right, yeah. yes. Yeah, he's done quite well for himself. So ultimately there's a showdown. Wanda Ventham's character gets tempted onto Paul Stasino's yacht. Would it be safe to say she doesn't know that she's been kidnapped? She's gone against her father's advice never to see Paul Stasino again. And she understandably can't understand why, because he hasn't told her that they're actually at daggers drawn over who runs the crime empire. Who, who runs the Latini? So Simon then co-opts Toby to drive him in a speedboat to the yacht, mm. announces that he's going to board, <laughs> climbs on board, and it's nice to see that Mediterranean yacht set again, mm. that very bit of deck and gangway that was used in the punch-up in The Lawless Lady. Yes, yeah. Um, Dawn Adams running her, running her um, crime ring. Simon puts his head straight into a noose, and then is packed off with Wanda Ventham into a storeroom. Yes, they're locked in, um, and it looks quite secure as well. Well, we never see inside. They don't need a set because Toby, enterprisingly, lets them out about five seconds later. You may also notice that, again, the Latini criminal empire 
you mentioned before about Mr. Stride's lack of a household staff, it appears that there's a lack of a crew on the boat as well. It must be their night off. <laughs> yes, I've given the staff a night off, all of them, forever. Even um, though we set sail at nine o'clock. <laughs> and then there's a minor character that we've seen who's been sweating away in various scenes, who is part of the Latini, appears to know a lot about the books. When you have a crime empire, <clears throat> one of your key players tends to be the bookkeeper, isn't it? Yes, tends, you, you know, for those of you familiar with Brian De Palma um, film The Untouchables, one of the key characters in that is the bookkeeper. You know, there's a massive shootout at the train station to ensure that the bookkeeper is captured alive to turn evidence against Al Capone. But yes, um, usually the accountant is, like you said, a very, very key figure. That's how to make accountancy exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think my friend Glenn trained to be a mob accountant for a while, but it was the hours found just just a bit too much. Yeah, and being menaced by people in white tuxedos with guns. <laughs> and he wraps things up quite neatly without the benefit of Simon Templer. Yeah, well, Mr. Stride is shot by Mr. Osman. Then Mr. Osman is shot by this mystery figure, Clemens. And so it's made to look as if they killed one another. And then Mr. Clemens, in a throwaway line towards the end, is revealed to have um, cirrhosis of the liver and is probably not going to live more than a month. And Wanda Ventham is grieving her dead dad but is not grieving her dead dad who was um running a criminal empire she is spared that shame yes lo loads of people write in to say what a nice man he was and... yes yeah well respected businessman and it appears because he's he's been able to deliver the goods towards the end of the episode um that maybe toby's not such a bad catch after all no, he, he may have gone through a learning process. Yes, Matured yes. a bit. And Wanda has too as well. Mm, and they're going off to travel the world. And who knows, they might even get their own spin-off series. They might do. Um, and as Simon says at the end, well, um, both your father and Osman ended up paying the death penalty. And then everyone stops and looks at the camera like the ending of an episode of Police Squad. Um, <laughs> It's interesting how, you know, that does seem to be a recurring theme now, the um, uh, the idea of, right, we're going to have the title as the last line. I mean, I quite like that as a conceit, because um, in my watching of Return of the Saint, there was nothing that was actually quite as neat as that. None of it was as well crafted. I say none of it, actually. You know, the Imprudent Professor was actually reasonably decent. But I think... The scripts in the Roger Moore series are actually better, which is strange because so many people who wrote for Return of the Saint actually had also written for shows in the 60s. And I'm not entirely certain how the 70s affected that, whether it was some kind of production thing and they just wanted people running around more than they wanted smart dialogue, I'm not sure. Um, I've got an idea, I've got a suggestion. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether this will will bear close scrutiny. But when we see the credits for the Saint TV series with Roger Moore, um, the, the credit we normally see is uh, at the end, you know, whoever's whoever's written it is, you know, quite often based on one of the short stories from Leslie Charteris. And maybe in The Return of the Saint, they didn't have the benefit of those Possibly. I don't know. Like I said, I would need to study. I think so. And also the fact that I don't think Harry W. Junkin had much input into the scripts. Basically, he was the showrunner for certainly the Black and White Saints. And I think that influence was not available for Return of the Saint. Yeah, I mean, looking at it, there's, there's lots of credits, you know, from a story by... Um, people like Roger Parks and John Cruz um, and and Michael Armstrong. Um, you know, there's some some original ones by uh, like Leon Griffiths, Michael Pertwee, but Leslie Charteris is just credited as I, I created the same. You're on your own now. Do what you want with it. Yeah, uh, and I think that shows 
but also I think it's very much of its time and production values and the market and such. Anyway, returning to the death penalty, we know Paul Stasino has to be the villain again <laughs> because he knows how to wear a white tuxedo. He does. I think he was last seen, is it, um, all the fishing episode, which again was in the south of France, wasn't it? He's got a couple of more to turn up in where he plays um, plays a prince and he plays a police captain or colonel. Hopefully on the right side of the law for once. Yeah, give him a chance. Show his range. Yes, he has one point, but five saints and loads of other stuff. Uh, Brewster Mason, Mr. Stride. This is his only Very saint. Young Mr. Stride. So plenty of other stuff, including classics such as The War of the Roses and The Palaces, as well as Sergeant Court. Ah. Have you caught up with those yet, Dave? I haven't seen. I haven't seen him in it yet. I've watched about four of them. I think I may have described. I read what Leslie Halliwell said about it in his TV guide. He said it wasn't as good, or didn't think he didn't think it was as good as as Crib. Mm. Okay, and he describes it a murder mystery who've gone to the dressing up box. But that's it's a little that's harsh. Leslie. Well, Leslie Halliwell was very harsh on, on most things. Yes, you haven't got to the facial hair mishap. No, no, I'm looking forward to that. Yes, uh, that is well worth watching. Wanda Ventham we've discussed, a star. Uh, Scott Finch, while he was in this, uh, so it was his only saint, he was in the middle of his 71 episodes of Compact. <laughs> Arnold Diamond, who also appears in Sergeant Cork, he returns as Inspector Latignon, who accepts gifts from the saint we mm. talked about him before uh he has two points and another 200 screen credits rory mcdermott one point a studio-based kathy gale episode danger man moonstrike the plane makers william marlowe 78 screen credits including 56 episodes of the gentle touch yes yeah he's by jill gascoigne's boss yes he probably was old enough to do that by then wasn't he <laughs> 51 episodes of Rooms, which I think is also on Talking Pictures. On Schooling on, on um, Talking Pictures, yes. Nine episodes of Doctor Who, uh, pretty much everything up to EastEnders in 1991, and of course, one Avengers point. Alan Curtis guested in nearly everything, including The Avengers Once, and on TV with Morecambe and Wise five times. Uh, and he had a run of 13 episodes of Compact. Now, if people don't remember what Compact was, it was a BBC soap which was set on a magazine called Compact. It was a women's magazine, but it was obviously part of a publishing empire. And they were also going to launch a news magazine under the title of Impact. And even at my very tender age, I thought, that's actually quite a good title. Mm. I don't know whether they had a Berlin office. <laughs> yeah, Berlin desk. Have you been watching The Four Just Men, by the way? No, I I haven't. I, I'm Again, that's going to be one of my catch-ups. Oh, right. On, on TP Encore. There's The Beatniks was the one last Saturday. <laughs> it's a bit like a precursor to Tony Hancock's The Rebel. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. In the same way that The Loving Brothers set the template for the portrayal of Australians. I think the Beat Neeks also <laughs> set the template for alternative cultural groups of the late 50s and early 60s. A lot of goatee beards, black walnut sweaters and jazz. So Arthur Gomez, 14 episodes of The Four Just Men and twice in oh, the right. Calling. Now, I think there's a credit on here for the song Out To Get You by Chris Andrews. Right, now that does appear on the double album, which was the, the music from ITC. And it's a very catchy number. Like I said, it does feature on the double album, featuring the music, um, both the main themes from a lot of the ITC shows and also some of the instrumental bits and pieces, which you kind of get used to and they kind of become quite, quite familiar. But yes, there are some songs as well, and that is one
they certainly got their money's worth because it keeps reappearing in various mm. episodes of The Saint, particularly the colour versions. That's something for people to watch out for. And then tropes. The title is The Last Line. The Saint is just passing through. Me? <laughs> I'm just passing through. Do we also get daughters betrayed by fathers? We haven't got that as a regular trope, but it has been a theme previously. Yeah, because poor old Jane Asher got let down by Anthony Quayle. Did Geoffrey Keane also let down his daughter? Because it turned out he was running the villain's outfit. Do you remember when they imprisoned Simon in a bomb shelter? outside and threatened to pump in poison gas so yeah this does seem to be a little bit of a theme of daughters being let down by dads i think you'd probably have to hire a freudian analyst for that one <laughs> he encounters a blonde woman about five foot six in her 20s just someone who's walking long distance in unsuitable footwear yes the saints agony aunt advice I just don't know how to handle Laura, that's all. Try giving her a good spanking. Oh, great. Women like to be dominated. Yeah, it's not ideal. It's not very on message, is it? No, but he has done it before. I think probably yes. on the golden journey. There have been moments when he says, I've never hit a woman, but in your case, I might make an exception. That was, I think, another unfaithful wife. We also have an attempt on Simon's life in a completely empty car park, apart from the Saints car and a big Mercedes. With a lot of buildings which had very big roll shutters. Which thing. indicates that Mr Darley's club isn't in the best of districts. No, it's in Elstree. Goodness <laughs> <laughs> sake. Because that's Elstree's car park right there. And for once, it hasn't got a ship and it's not pretending to be a dockyard. Mm. Yes, he's imprisoned, not in a cellar this time, but in the ship's storeroom. And so there's no need for another set and some inventive plumbing. Or because probably they haven't got room in that storeroom for the large barrels that usually come into play in such situations. Mm. So three episodes with actually quite a lot in common. Two of them, a cast of quite unpleasant characters. Mm even more unpleasant than you get in your average Agatha Christie. What are we dealing with next, Dave? Well, the next episode is, again, you know, what we have to take into account. Uh, you know, the, the TV series, The Saint, is very much of its time. It's set during the 1960s. And so it may be difficult for us to relate to the plot and the storyline, such as next week's episode is about an indiscreet politician. And thankfully due to hard work and revisionist and reform approaches within Parliament. That's something we don't have to worry about nowadays. So it's going to be like watching a charming historical piece to look forward to. We have Anthony Bate, Jennifer Wright um, and Michael Goff um, turning up plus in one of those lovely little crossover bits and pieces. Someone from another ITC series turns up and it's Mike Pratt. Oh, right. And also in the cast list, we've got Gene Marsh again. And we've also got Jeremy Burnham as Tim Burton, the film director. Could it be? I don't know. Yes, Jeremy Burnham, who has several Avengers points and wrote several scripts. We've also got Maury Watson as well turning up. It's all put together by John Llewellyn Moxie. Uh, so there we go, we've got that to look forward to. I shall rub my hands in anticipation. Um, um, the title, by the way, is The Imprudent Politician. Again, oh. <laughs> a work of complete fantasy. Yes. Just on any other business, because Saturday night has become one of those things on multi-channel television for half-hour stuff from 1959, mm. Legend is showing the twilight zone on saturdays and sundays yes they are i've seen a couple of those they are very spooky and very well done yeah and also have connections to british television because gene marsh appears in one of them mm. as an android there was a character in a story about a man who couldn't sleep because he was frightened <laughs> of dreaming uh, which was richard conti who is also one of the Four Just Men, which is filmed at Walton Studios. And there was a woman who was haunting his dreams. And I thought, oh, 1959? She looks extraordinary like Suzanne Lloyd, and surely it can't be. But it was. 
<gasps> it's Suzanne Lloyd as some kind of burlesque dancer at a carnival who uh, is also appearing as the psychiatrist's secretary. And you sort of think, oh, right, um, she must have been quite young. So, yeah, those Twilight Zone episodes are remarkably scoopy, and most of them are written by Rod Serling. Yeah, you forget. Kind of, he was, he did an awful lot of the heavy lifting, you know, acting as narrator, acting as host, um, scripting a lot. You know, a lot sometimes that would be original as well. It was only in the later stages that, you know, he may have teamed up with, with people like Richard Matheson to perhaps adapt some of his short stories. But yeah, um, all in all, it's a sterling effort. I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> right, this has been Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the review show where we have been talking about black and white television that appeared between 1956 and 1974 on British television screens. Not everything made it across the pond, but a lot of it did. We have been mainly talking about the black and white episodes of The Saint, The Loving Brothers, The Man Who Liked Toys and The Death Penalty. These are going out on Talking Pictures Television and The Death Penalty will be now on uh, Talking Pictures TV Encore. Still catch it up, yeah. Still catch up with it, yes. And the earlier episodes, um, they're being repeated, is it Wednesday or Thursday? Wednesdays, I think, aren't they? Yes. Thursdays, I thought, but anyway. Thursday. Yes, they'll also be available. I'm Guy Morgan, my co-host as ever, has been David Newell. Hello. And... We will be discussing many other black and white bits of television and the next couple of saints next time. I thank you.